I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Fernando Batetta on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. Yeah, very, very excited. Glad you're in Chicago. Well, you know, yeah. had to come back sometime. So you're a big wig at the old Tenzig Wine and Spirits. But how'd you get there? You Well, you were born in Guatemala. I, I was. Kind of a very, um, very chameleon background um, because I was born in Guatemala. But when I was four years old, my parents moved to Virginia. And so I grew up from a uh, kindergarten through middle school in the United States, and I thought I would stay here forever. And then we went back to Guatemala, I was 13, on a family trip, loved it so much. My parents promised my sisters and I that they would buy us a pony if we did. Uh, never saw the pony, <laughs> never got, but our cousins had like horses, We're like, oh, so this, this country's great. And uh, they they went back because they they were in the restaurant business. And they're turning now 40 years anniversary of their restaurants in Guatemala. And both of my parents were chefs, and it was just natural. I felt like that was what I was going to do. And you can imagine, like, growing up in, in a society in Virginia, it, I was I spoke like, y'all, I was more Southern. <laughs> and then going to Guatemala and getting picked on with my last name and uh, just fitting in, I was sort of a rebel, and I, I never did well in school, kicked out of high schools. And That's funny because you you know you're fluent in languages and yeah, you've done well in school. So English is like my things. mother tongue, and... Because uh, I think in it, and it's what I read, and it just became you know, easier. Spanish was hard because it wasn't used uh, with my sisters and around the house. It was until just I used was... by the guys making fun of you. Exactly. Um, so when I was 18, my dad wanted me to work directly in the restaurant. He He's like, I don't, you don't need to go to college. He didn't go to college. He thought I could learn what I need to learn in the restaurant and one day take over it. But my mom was like, no, you just you know, get an education. So instead of coming back to the States, because... I didn't do SATs. I didn't get into that like program. Uh, I went to Europe, and first place was uh, somewhere where the language is going to be easier. So I thought about like the Canary Islands. There's a hotel school, and then the Canary Islands. Yeah, you know it's really big in in, in Latin America. They is that true? Of, yeah, there there's a hotel school there, and and I, I didn't even know what these islands were. I just thought it was cool. It's, a, it's an island, but um, I, I ended up choosing uh, Florence, Italy, because I had a friend there, and it, we just moved there and 
You're like, I can say Sangiovese, yeah, but slowly, the Grape and the Canaries, yeah, I don't slowly, know. It, learning the language. So now I'm like on my third language, 18 years old, living alone in Europe. It was the best, uh, best time of my life. And I did all that hotel management basics, you know, service, restaurants, food and beverage, and marketing. And then you had to do a six-month internship. And so the, the, my internships were in hotels in Sardinia and Rome. And everything was exactly what I wanted to do, go back to Guatemala. I found Sardinia and Rome to be a little different. Oh, yeah. But did, why? Well, they're a little different. Oh, yeah, very different. You know, Rome's like this big metropolitan city with all this history, and Sardinia's this place with all this history where very sparsely populated and there's shepherds going by and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Very, very unique. So I came from, you know, that little town in Guatemala in the mountains, and then uh, working in, in Rome, which is, you know, buzz and everything and, and working at a high level with Michelin star chefs. And, and I just loved it. And Sardinia was completely, you know, more laid back, but it was a, it was still a resort. And it was 1997, ready to go back. My parents are basically, you're coming to work. It was maybe 23. And um, I, I get a, a call from my mom. It's like, no, no, you know what? Change the plan. Just stay in Europe. And they never really like, what? why would you just want me to spend you? The rest of the summer here, they, and, they and, never found the pony. Is that yeah, why they were like, like we just, haven't found the, the pony? Yeah, things aren't really going that well here in Guatemala because the, they had uh, changed. Uh, they had ended a civil war that had gone on for like thirty five years, and, I see. and they were. She's like, it's not really great for you to come back, and and so forth. I didn't know until three weeks later that my sisters had been kidnapped, and I have two younger sisters who are twins. They were in high school, and my my parents were completely like. Um, keeping me in the dark, so I wouldn't know. And and they ran, they kidnapped them for ransom. And this was, uh, you know, they're fine now. They got through all of that, but it changed me completely from being this crazy kid who's, you know, had his future set by always thinking I was going to go back and work with my parents, and um, kind of taking it easy in Florence and, and these other places. Then suddenly, like, okay, they don't want me to come back. Uh, in fact, my parents wanted all the kids out of the country. And so they're like, we're going to send your sisters to live with you in Europe. Just uh, figure out what you want to do. Like, if you want to study, we'll help you in that in that sense. And that's how I kind of chose a further hotel school in Switzerland. Do you ever talk to your sisters about that time period? Uh, we do. And, and it's been, what now, you know, 16 years, uh, 17 years since it's happened. But I think it's all in the past, something that we... Uh, maybe my parents, because they remember that period, will recall it more around the anniversary, because I think it happened like in October or September, um, which I kind of forget about it completely. And it just comes up like this, like, well, what really changed in my life that makes me who I am now? Everybody kind of always has something. And I was just thinking about it today. I'm like, well, you know, I would be in Guatemala if it wasn't for this thing that, you know, just made me say, okay, I'm going to um, perhaps live in the United States or in Europe the rest of my life and um, got me really serious about studying. So Switzerland became like, uh, you know, a difficult school, had to learn French because all my classes were in French, marketing and accounting. And again, wine was another subject. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Everybody could tell that I, I liked it and having those four languages now fluently easier to understand and so forth. So my final internship was in Thailand and worked on an island there and so forth. Three years had gone by. I felt it was fine to go back to Guatemala. But by then, I kind of felt like 
I didn't have my friends from my youth. It was interesting. I loved working with my parents. They had now four restaurants. And I was 25 and I just felt like, mm, you know, what, what do I do next? Uh, do I stay here or do I do something else? And then that's how I ended up in Chicago. Just basically through a friend of a friend who said, you should go work in Chicago. And I said, no, I don't want to live in the United States. I have no interest. Send me to Bangkok. I'll go work in Hungary. I'll go work in South America. But they're like, your background, you lived in the States, you speak English, makes sense. So they, it was a little convincing, uh, but I took the job. That's how I ended up at the Ritz-Carlton. And that's actually owned by the Four Seasons in Chicago. Yeah, it is. And that, that's why it, it was interesting because Four Seasons was the company I wanted to join. And they told me about the Ritz-Carlton. And I was like, fantastic. I want to be a hotel manager now, live in a, in a big city. Uh, I've never been to Chicago, so I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. But uh, loved it the minute I came out of the train, saw it became passionate with everything that the hotel was doing and they had a big wine list. And it was kind of funny because I think about how there was a, a restaurant manager and he was a sommelier, but whenever the servers felt a little bit like they needed somebody to be like, you, uh, Francisco, Fernando, go, go talk to the table. You mean you, you speak, uh, you know, you're, you look European, they'll believe you. And I just BS my way th with these, t with these cu customers. I'd always say things like, the wine is balanced, it's elegant, has a long finish, and never describe the, the, the fruit, the flavors, or I've even the story. I've been doing that for 15 years. Exactly. Yeah. I, I tell everybody, just remember those three things. It has good fruit. <laughs> exactly. I had no knowledge of American wine. And I, I knew the, the Brunello di Montalcinos. I had heard of Bordeaux. Everything you would learn in hotel school. But it forced me to kind of like buy a book. And my, my boss said, buy the California wine and read Wine Spectator and so forth. And that's kind of how I started. Because you came in in, what, the 90s? 2001. Oh, okay. So yeah, 2001. Was, yeah. So after I graduated and after my internships and spent a year in Guam, got this offer, 2001, September 4th. So that whole, like, I thought I was going to lose my job after September 11th. I was still living in the hotel in a room when, when all that happened. But um, they didn't fire anybody, so it was it was even more reason to stay, because I think originally I thought maybe I'll do this for a year, but everything that happened in the world also was like okay maybe a year, eighteen months passed before I knew I was involved in in this hotel like a family, and the restaurant manager left. I became the manager in the sommelier, uh, Grand Award wine list, and just really started learning more about wine, and uh, I mean. Larry Stone had worked at the Ritz-Carlton. Like he had been one of the sommeliers there. So there was this uh, these predecessors that had been there and I heard about and I wanted to learn them. So I remember calling Larry Stone and saying, I want to be uh, a master sommelier. What do I need to do? And, and he talked to me for an hour and, and uh, started taking the classes and going to every tasting that I could. And uh, it was kind of funny because I, I joke around that uh, I'm the slumdog sommelier. Because my background is was never around wine growing up in the family until I was way into my college years. But because I had been like, oh, in Switzerland, and then I'd been in France, I'd been in Italy, it was just remembering a little bit of that, piecing it together so that I could talk about it and learn it quicker. Was there a conscious decision where you said, you know, I don't think management, I think wine? That happened afterwards. It was, I passed my advanced sommelier and I was still managing but I, I loved the people. I think the difference between management in 
for sort of that front of the house and the sommelier society it's like they're they're like my people i get them they they embrace the food and wine they like the chef side it's in their it's in our blood it's, it's whatever even though I, I still think management's are but they're a little different from what we see and and uh i wanted to be that so in that sense it was like the decision of saying i, I still want to be the restaurant manager i want to make all decisions i want to own my own restaurant but i like the community and so i found that myself hanging out with them more often and who are some of those people that you're hanging out with? Um, at the time, Belinda Chang was living here. Scott Tyree was at True. Uh, there was a great group. Uh, Jamie Smith was uh, somebody with Linda Violago at Charlie Trotters, Seraphin. And they've all like moved on, become sommeliers, uh, renowned all over the world. So in- inspiring here in Chicago, Alpana Singh. I-, I think she inspired me the most because she was a minority and, and they would always write the same kind of story I mean, she's brilliant, but it was like, she's a woman and she comes from like an Indian background and then, you know, Indian women weren't allowed to drink. And so how did she overcome that? And I'm like, oh, I'm a woman inside. No, <laughs> I, I'm like, well, I'm Guatemalan. I don't have like Guatemalan, Latinos, different, learning wine, like huge hurdles. And I, um, yeah, and because I said, really you don't see many Latinos yeah. in the wine business. Yeah. I mean, I'm the only the one from Guatemala. And then um, I know like three other mass sommeliers that are from either Chile or Mexico or uh, Puerto Rico, like surfing. So it's not a lot, but yeah, I've inspired so many. And I think that's what I really, really get out of this is, is uh, helping other people and, you know, saying, if I can do this, you can do this. Did you ever talk to her about that? Yeah. I told her all the time. I had like the biggest crush on, on her basically because she, from what she was doing, she was a head sommelier and, um, she was at Everest at the time? At Everest, yeah. And I remember like saying, you're a master sommelier, and how can I um, become one? And and she was always, always supportive of me and helped me. So she, she was great, I think. And and now that we get to teach and see each other at sommelier class in, in, in shows, we kind of look back at that. And she's done so much with her career. It's, it's amazing. And even like she just opened a restaurant. And I'm like, see, you inspired me again. Like, I wish I could do that. But I don't have the time <laughs> or the investors that she does. What was it that made you say, I'm going to take the uh, Master Sommelier route? I, I think the there was a side group, a community here that was doing that. And they, I, I got the invite sort of like through the hotel, like who wants to do this intro course? And then uh, I signed up. They're like, you actually need to do it. You're the, the restaurant manager. And then when the second level came around, um, my dad and people were like, you should do this. It's something. I never thought I would become a Master Sommelier. I never... Uh, imagine i would continue but once i got involved and i and i did well i i i liked it and i enjoyed studying i enjoyed the competitions and when uh when the chandler rotisseur was doing their young sommelier competitions i'd i'd do them i'd win them and i, I just mass sommelier was the program that that seemed like it was you know the way to go but i tell people there's many different courses whatever you want to do it's a great structure um, but whatever's evolved, because I know every different one is has its own, you know, pros and some are cons. But uh, I like this group. Well, it seems like you did pretty well in a fairly short period of time. You made it through in what six years? Yeah, it was it was very quick, and I think it's because of the languages and my experience, like traveling and work. It wasn't so much the the memorization. I did. I, it wasn't the type that like takes flashcards and just studies them. But working with a great list, having 
mentors around you, having opportunity to taste, uh, definitely accelerates your palate. If you're in a city or you don't have the, the support group, it's always going to be harder. I was I was sitting my first time the master when I was my first year in, in Nomi. So in what's Nomi? Nomi is the uh, hotel at the Park Hyatt in Chicago. It stands for North Michigan. And it was, it's still French influenced and now it's like a little bit of American cuisine. But when I joined in 2005, it was uh, Sandro Gamba, French guy, and they had a magnificent wine program, probably like 1500 wine selections. And I said, wow, they're probably selling more wine in a day than we sold at the Ritz in the month. Um, Why do you think that would be? It was just busy. It was, there was this buzz, the, the amount of people that were walking through there every single night and actually drinking wine, ordering champagne, and um, diving into the cellars, older vintages, and tons of it. Really, you walk inside the restaurant, there's this giant wine cellar. It just calls for like wine. And there was a reputation. And the, the Ritz was had lost its grand award because it just didn't keep up with adding more to their inventory. But few people knew that their cellar was like a million dollars, and it had vintages from the 20s and the 40s and so forth, like, from Bordeaux, but nobody was buying them. You know, they were drinking Ferrari Carano uh, by the glass and just admiring the wine list. Whereas Nomi, it's like you couldn't keep those on the list. Uh, the you know, the collector wines. You you'd get your allocation and and they'd fly. And it was it's exciting. I think that at the time, you know, people were spending it, and that was the, one of the restaurants you could do that. Was it a goal of theirs to get a grand award? It was at at the beginning and. It was quite funny. My first year, we went to uh, an auction. It was a live auction with um, the Hotel Food and Beverage, with Sommelier. And we wanted to get a case of mixed champagnes, like older vintages. We started trying to bid for it. This person in the front like kept raising his paddle. And we started raising it. We started getting it. And then finally, uh, we, we won. And we're at, at the end of the auction paying for it. We had realized we were bidding against uh, the president of Hyatt uh, North America, Ed Rabin, who was a huge wine collector. And we were like, you were bidding for that? You, you, know, you actually made us now like raise the price so much. But he was like, oh, wow, I love it. Actually, big wine collector. And he was very influential in like telling us uh, how to grow the program. What did he say? Of, well, financially, he'd be like, he'd come in, like he knew his wine, so before the auctions, now we had to always meet together and say, okay, what do you want? What do I want? Yeah, maybe pre-gaming. Yeah, pre-gaming. Yeah. Because we'd bid against each other and we didn't want that. But he would say, you guys need to beef up your burgundy list or something. He'd say, you guys should really spend some attention on this or get this winemaker. So I mean, when that happens from the very high level in the top, you get coolers installed right away. One phone call... And the general manager is telling you, I got a call from Ed Rabin at corporate, and he said, blah, 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 blah. I don't understand, but yeah, uh, yeah. he said, blah, blah, Something blah, about wine blah, blah, cooler, blah, cooler. <laughs> arriving Wednesday. And can you just buy them? Can the chef just give them to you? Can, can you just make this happen? Was kind of the way, and we would be like, great. And, and some of that support happened with like giving us extra rooms for storage. I mean, we had to take up three parking garages in the, on the sixth floor to add eight or nine Euro calves. So that kind of, you know, doesn't happen in a hotel with a, with a management that doesn't want to you know, put in that investment. But when, when they were around, it, it happened and, and it was fantastic. 
and then everybody moved around. So it, it does change a little bit when the hotel manager is like, you have how much in inventory? Yeah. And then they're used to working with smaller wine lists. So. But if it's selling, it's selling. It, oh, it was, like it was selling. Moving. It was, and it still does. They just, they say they sell more bottles because there's more people, but at a lower um, price. And also the economy changed. I mean, I went through a period of six, seven, eight, and the nine was already like slow down and, uh, I was asked to, you know, reduce the, the wine list and the amount of purchasing and just kind of manage it a little bit more. Uh, and you you can only raise the price on certain things and that, you know, end up looking like you're you're gouging people. So that, that's difficult. And that's why your first question is like, how did I end up at Tenzing? Because I was, I was very happy. I had passed my master sommelier exam. I wanted to work the floor as a master. I didn't want to go behind a desk somewhere. Yeah, I, I was traveling a lot more. I was getting asked to go do these like courses. I was and, and I was taking time away from the my job at the hotel. And I couldn't just keep asking for a week off here, a week off there. And I was starting to think of like what other direction, what other job I can do and still enjoy everything that has to do with wine. And Ken Fredrickson, who's a who's the founder of the company, he's a master somewhat. And he was my friend. He had moved to Chicago, had been to know me, and he was already talking about just starting a new company. And I didn't know what. What that, was he saying? I don't know. He was just kind of saying, "I'm going to start a company, and it's going to be brilliant." And I, and I asked him, "What do you mean? We're going to have?" Uh, he didn't want to say the word distributor, because I think in his mind he he wanted it to be a service-minded company that would change all the words and the lingo that you use for like wholesale distribution to uh, a, a service. I, it was difficult to say because I really didn't know I'm at, you mean we want to be an importer or distributor? And he's like, yeah, that's the short answer. And he, uh, he had experienced that. He, he owned one in Nevada before. So he, he wanted to start from scratch here. In yeah. Chicago. That's where I met him was when he was in Nevada. Yeah. He had Nevada time. wine agents and uh, he, he did really well there. It was very successful. I had a lot of, challenges along the way and in, in that kind of market and because uh, i remember he came with rob bigelow once for dinner yeah yeah he knows everybody in the business and it's amazing if you know ken he 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 has a lot of friends a lot of connections and he's able to put together a, an amazing book in a short amount of time in chicago in chicago yeah and uh, he, uh douglas morello was another master some way the three of us were kind of set to opened this new company, didn't have a name. And he went to, he was in Nepal and he was in the Himalayas uh, on, a, on, a, on a trip, vacationing. I think he was with Raj. Raj probably took him to India. And he, he heard about the word Tenzing and what that meant. And, and Tenzing is a very uh, common name and, and it means uh, equilibrium, balance, but it's also the namesake of our, our inspiration was Tenzing Norgay. And Tenzing Norgay was the Sherpa guide that led Edmund Hillary up Mount Everest sure, in 1953. First, first climb, right? Exactly. And and uh, the story was the same. Like, we are guides. We're Sherpas. We'll carry the hard load. We, we know the route. Say, we're the experts. And then the, the customer or the importer or the winery, the little guy in, in Austria, they're, they're, they're the people that we're trying to get them. Because to many, uh, Chicago might like be like the Everest. How do they navigate all the laws and all the service? And so... At the end of 2009, basically December, it all kind of started to come together. He told me, I really want you to come work with us. And 
What was the proposition when they sat down? What did they say? Exactly. Because I said, I, I don't know anything about distribution. I, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it. And he said, you just continue to be yourself. And I think what, what I was doing was that I was very active in the community uh, with tasting groups and with events. And I could get a group of sommeliers uh, to know me late night and drink Pilsner Raquel and make pig and and so he knew I had a lot of a lot of influence. The people in general like me. And he said, We we really want somebody to be in this company that knows service, knows wineries, people respect it. If we told them, you know, you're on board, they'll get it. And it's not just like, you know, business person. And that I love teaching. So it was the director of education role. So he basically said, Look, I don't like titles. In fact, our our first business cards never had titles, but he said, I want you to be the person that that, that can help write a blog, do social media, you know, get your Twitter people involved so that when we open this company, it, it'll be interesting. We'll have some following. We'll have some interest. And he said, continue to do what you do. Like, and so our offices have space to do events. And this morning I was doing a tasting group with, with 10 younger sommeliers who are going through that process and learning. And uh, it, it's, it's part of my job. So it's, it's, it's fun. I don't feel guilty. Like I have to take time away from work. It's, it's getting them excited. And, and every day is different. One day it's, you know, interviewing a winemaker. Another day it's going to, to a restaurant and, and doing staff trainings. So I still train, you know, thousand people more a year through different like, classes or seminars and still sell wine, which we all love to do. So instead of the hotel staff, you're training other sommeliers or aspiring yeah. sommeliers. Yeah. So our our company is, is quite small. It uh, so Tenzing Wine Spirits in Chicago. We are about thirteen sales guides. So we call them guides. So it's well, it's not quite small. That's, yeah. Yeah. Know, for for Chicago, we we medium. yeah mid, medium medium yeah. size. <laughs> uh, you know, there's the companies with like two guides. Yeah, there's companies know, with like five hundred people, but yeah. they're yeah they're a lot smaller for sure. Um, we put them through four hours mandatory training every single week. And it it might be a subject that, that we don't even sell. Like I, I did a tasting on Madeira uh, just so that they know what's out there. And whenever I'm re- relating maybe a, a brand or a story of a producer, we go out and buy some other bottles from a pr- different people and get them excited about wine in general, what we love. Because most of the time, uh, myself, I continue to buy wines that we don't sell just because it's, you know, they're great wines, great producers. And doing a lot of events, it's... It's crazy how many little events we do in that little base camp is our, our offices. But it sounds like kind of a generational change for distribution in Chicago because it, here you have a distributor that's run by sommelier types, or at mm-hmm. least there's several calling the shots in the company, as opposed to more liquor types. Did you see that as a change at the time? Yeah, I think it was, you know, it rough a lot of feathers. It's still a lot of joke, like how many MSs does it take to work in a company? And yet we all... The three of us still, you know, appreciate where we come from, but we are not the ones who are going to wear a pin every single day. We're not saying we're master sommeliers and like learn from. I think we're all each have our strengths, and Ken will be the first to to tell you that he's not as active in the court, that he's not doing the course, he doesn't know uh, how it drains. That he's business. He knows how to run a business really well, and he he lets me do all that. And then Douglas, he's a great sales director. So he knows how to lead a team. I, I don't like to manage people. I think I love managing my bottles and my books. And but it, uh, he he's very good and motivating his staff and and doing the numbers thing. 
and so people outside at the beginning were kind of like looking at the company and but i think from the beginning they they, they liked that we we're trying to do what we always wanted a distributor to do to us like what service. you wish had been around yeah. before and so we, our culture came in really different we don't wear a tie and jacket everywhere and we had this office that's very relaxing. We first had a ping pong table. It's still there. We don't use it as often, but you listen to music and you have some good coffee. And Does that mean you got beat badly at ping pong and you're like, screw this, yeah, I'm screw not playing this. anymore. I'm not playing this 2012. You know, it was at the beginning when it was slower, but now we're too busy. But uh, we, we've always trying to do things that are kind of outside the box. There's a chef there, right? Yeah, we have a full-time chef, and he, he worked at Bradley Ogden. He's worked with Charlie Trotters. I mean, that caliber chef. And, and when we do an event, we're going to have some awesome you know, producer from Burgundy, but we want to pair it with tacos, and he's going to make pulled pork and carnitas, just completely different, um, and he can do that. Or if we have German winemakers, we do currywurst and make the pretzel at, in the office. And people like that. It, it's not so formal that we can kind of be a little playful with it this morning we did a garage sale and it just people were like i love the format kind of come in and we originally wanted it to be like bring three things that you want to sell at the garage sale like a lamp a, a book the old atari 64 whatever people get it they we use a lot of different marketing fun things and that's what i get to do too with my design graphics like if you if you know andre mack like i do yeah exactly like i see the stuff he puts out and i like I want to copy it, but I love it. I dig it. I, I get what he does. And we sell his wines here in Chicago. And they fit perfectly when we go out with a sell sheet that instead of having you know technical information on the wine, there's whatever. There's a chicken Something on it. Something that relates neck. at a cultural level. Yeah, and people are like, I want to put that on a t-shirt because I think that's so cool. And they keep it. And that, that's been the culture that we've had at Tenzing since the beginning that people like want to keep the invites that we've sent out and every single month different cover on the price book and design them in it. I've had like, you know, borderline cease and desist letters never happen, but be like, so really, is Andre. Actually. Yeah. You're going to like put Tenzing <laughs> on a Wendy's uh, French fries and Arnold Schwarzenegger with a Tenzing tattoo on his back, like kind of funny things like that. There's definitely been some shirts that have been recalled from the, the Mac production line yeah. because of, uh, of that same concern. But you, yeah, you need to do that. You know, you push it, push the limits, push bit. the limits and, uh, Limited edition. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't do that, of course, in, in a corporate way at, at, at the Hyatt or what it's called. Like it was always, I think I had a lot of ideas and I wanted to be creative, but it always had to be very restrained. And today, sometimes we start off with this crazy idea, you know, for our events and we want to have cowboys and burlesque dancers. And then we want to have like a Chinese dragon coming through the tasting and, you know, little people on stilts and all that kind of stuff happens at the brain, you know, uh, storm session. And then we take it back, but we go out with the crazy ideas. We want, we want to do stuff like that. I found that sabering on stilts is more difficult than you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. So the core man will do that for us now. Like <laughs> finally a bottle that sabers itself. <laughs> What are some of the other mainstays of the book? You mentioned Andre Max wines. What are some other wines that you find regularly sell in the Chicago market? Chicago's very domestic. It's really heavy domestic. We drink a lot of California, Oregon wines. They do well in the restaurants. But we're mostly import. For some reason, we gravitate to what Sommelier is like. So we've, we've built a very hefty French book. So we have producers like De Monti and Burgundy. Uh, we carry the Wilson Daniels stuff. So we have uh, Romanet Conti. But... Robert Bohr has the Rouleau, Kermit Lynch. So every every little region, 
that you could think of sometimes the obscure things from Corsica, but then a very strong Italian book. Every region is well represented. So you, Germany is like we were tasting Austria, but we've pretty much tried to cover the entire world. Just like when you build a wine list at, at that level, you, you always want to like, mm, maybe we should add some Slovenian wines. Uh, we need to carve out a little section of New Zealand, but not just one region. We try to find things from the north and Lahike, and we find things in central Otago. So it's always balanced. And Australia is probably the one that we don't have yet, but we have a meeting tomorrow. And just kind of continuously putting together a little great wine list so that we can go to a restaurant and be like, look, any of these wines would fit your program. We don't have anything too big, which is it's good. Our culture is still trying to keep. You mean in terms of volume? Yeah. Nothing that's, you know, millions of cases or hundred thousands of cases. I mean, some of our, I mean, if we sell a thousand cases, something that's amazing. So we're still trying to keep them small, mostly focusing in restaurants and, and retailers. And we don't sell to grocery stores. We just don't have the volume. So, so I think that's why Tenzing won't ever outgrow itself. Like if we do, we'll go to another state or we'll do something different. And that's why we also have a sake and spirits. And so what's the spirits portfolio like? The spirits is it's really crafty. Since the beginning, we were like we were we were ahead of the curve on that one for sure because nobody was doing these you know, the the bitters and the maros and things like that. And portfolios like Domain Select were in Chicago, but they were completely underserviced. Nobody knew the, the cool stuff they had. And Anchor Distilling, which was Price Imports, was another one. I mean, they had Luxardo and it had Armagnacs, all these little fantastic producers. And when we started working with them, suddenly all the bartenders, mixologists were like, wow, and fantastic. And you can order from you and only order one or two bottles. You don't have case minimum. We didn't have a minimum delivery charge. So we were selling little bottles of bitter, like the bitter truth, $4, and that would be our delivery. And eventually now we grow, but it, it it's fantastic to work now with producers directly from, you know, Mezcal and we're, we're going a lot into the Asian spirits, Japanese whiskeys, which are really exciting now from stuff from Taiwan. Seems like it's really blowing up, the Asian spirits. It is. It is. I mean, I think it was always things we wanted to um, to really drink ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember at the, at the beginning, we're like, we're not going to have vodka. <laughs> it was hard to find vodka. And that was like the category that sells the most. Sells the most. But we would find the little you know, organic potato grower from Sweden or one from Pennsylvania. And that that's how people started really seeing the integrity in the selection process, in the quality. And and now we, we I mean, there's a distillery opening up every week, it seems. We're getting all the samples because people think, you know, I'm small. I need somebody to tell the story. All these sales guides are like wine focused. They know they're not they're not talking the spirits lingo. They they understand terroir, and that's what I'm doing. They understand less brand driven, exactly, and they they know how to sell these difficult wines. So it's it's immediately plug and play, and that our our sales staff like see something, you know, the Jura. There's uh, they'll go, oh yeah, I know how to sell that, and I I love it. I enjoy making my cocktails. We used to make them, train them how to mix a cocktail, which cocktails were shaken versus stirred. I mean that that. that We've gone a long way, four years, but it seems like you, you walk in a, in a restaurant that doesn't have a Manhattan or an old-fashioned, you're like, it's not worth its grain and salt, right? Or a craft beer. So we're just now starting to get a little bit into that craft beer stuff. And it excites me because I'm still the wine person, but 
always learning more. Has there been a lot of profit movement on the craft spirits? Has it really been a, a mover for you? It, it is. It, it has uh, for sure been those products that are easier to manage than wine because if you get a spirits placement, it stays on for a year, if not longer, and there's no vintage changes. It's easier to manage in the warehouse, and uh, the margin's always a little bit higher. But they change a lot, too, because sometimes they outgrow themselves and they become bigger brands and they have to go to a different distributor but that does seem like an evolution yeah we where would these guys do more and more volume and then go to a different thing yeah or they get purchased or something so i think right now it'd be like 30 70 so 30 percent of our revenue is still coming from spirits uh i mean we'd love it to be higher because the margins better it's easy to manage like i mentioned but i think we don't want to be a spirits company only and people remember that we're very wine focused and you know, even sake we have a complete expert that does sake and we have somebody that does spirits to always keep each person managing their own group and producers and talking to the breweries is chicago a spirits town in a way oh my god that's um, unbelievable i think you you can find that there are more celebrity bartenders in chicago than there are celebrity sommeliers for sure the just with like places like the aviary that that is doing things that are um, absolutely like innovative and forward thinking and Charles Jolie, like he's winning competitions everywhere he goes because they're really pushing the boundaries. But then there's like tiki bars and uh, the Paul McGee's that are very good at what they do and they make them crafty and original. And, and the neighborhoods, I think people in the Midwest, they love beer. They know uh, the brown spirits are very popular here. So it's a big, big uh, spirits town. So what's a typical day for you? Favorite days is like when there are winemakers and I get to ride along with them and take them to see customers because I'm not very good at driving. Uh, I get lost more. <laughs> I usually get a ticket and I have to valet, not, but I, I enjoy talking with them and then telling their story or hearing their story and going to the different some ways and seeing that sometimes people don't know them, you know, like if, if you, Think of a great producer, like I'm riding with uh, Etienne Monti, and I think he's like one of the, the greatest. Just getting those appointments with a sales guide might not happen. But if it comes from me, then they're willing to give me some time. And they're like, Fernando, who is this person? I'm like, this is Etienne Monti. His wines are not, have not always been available in Chicago. Maybe that's why you don't know him. But in New York, they do really well. In France, they're always sold at auction and whatever. Uh, so that part of the sales, I'm just not good at asking for the sale. So... I leave that to the salespeople. You consider yourself a kind of a soft sell personality. Absolutely. I want to tell them exactly because it's, it's the hard thing about being on this side is that we do have to sell. It's not like people think that sommeliers because they, they have knowledge that they can move to the side. You have that captive audience. You have people that come in your restaurant that are going to buy a bottle of wine. And they have no choice but to pick wines that you already picked. <laughs> Unless they're bringing a BYO, right? They're going to take your suggestion. We have a scenario now where nobody needs our wine. Nobody, there's so much wine out there, there's good wine out there, and they're going to, you have to overcome sort of that barrier of like, this is our service. We'll do what we need, you know, we'll tell you the story, provide the same day delivery, the next day delivery, uh, clean up if there's any mistakes. You're always, you've uh, you've gone from the being the ass kissy to the ass kisser, right? And it's it's always difficult managing two customers, your you know, your buyer and also your customer as your the the producer. 
and you have an obligation to keep them happy. So there's a lot of service. So I think that's why we really do all we enjoy all that that service minded and, and you know things go well. It's it's golden. Have there been aspects of that that have surprised you? Have you said, boy, I just wasn't expecting that to be so easy or so difficult or that way? I think every day there's something that you know you need you need to learn the terminologies and the business and the movement of wineries and how they will change. Distribution in, in the United States is very difficult because every state is like their own country and learning the laws and going through the pricing grids and all the different levels is something that it's still learning. And uh, uh, so, so in, that, in that sense, I thought it, would, it was always easy to find a wine. That's so what we get requests sometimes from our buyers like, can you get me this wine like next week? Uh, I'll put it on the wine list. And no matter how fast you work, you can't. You can't do the things that quickly. And then there's so many laws and back labels and things I'm learning. So, uh, and then just pricing is one of those things I, I couldn't believe how the prices can change and influence people. Because I thought if I put this wine on, it's $50, it's really good, you're gonna like it. No, nope. you know, it, it has to fit that price point and it can be crap, but that's what they want. Um, so we, we've, we're trying, uh, we always try to find things of value, but we never like, undermine the quality so we, we wish we had some wines that were in the you know six dollar range all the time but uh most most often not we have things that are more geeky somebody and they fit in, in restaurant lists what are the price parameters for chicago buyers normally what is the range well i think it's it's definitely changed just because of the restaurant scene that the fine dining restaurants are a lot less and that everybody wants to make it more casual so that that sweet spot on a on a wine list here is sixty to seventy five, and then yeah, there's the California wines that go on there for two hundred or, or above, but uh, nobody's really buying you know unknown or small regions that are just going to sit on your wine list. We're not really big Burgundy city, even though there's well, it's hard to find Burgundy in that range because that's like twenty yeah. twenty five wholesale. Yeah, so you'd be talking about Passe Grand or Bourgogne Rouge. Yeah, but even here with anything, um, you know, at village level that, that you want to sell for $30, $35, it's going to end up on a wine list for two or three times the price, depending. It, it's hard because the Chicago, you know, consumer is still going to go to California for that price range. And if you buy anything a little higher than that, of course, it's then someone can't sell it or just stays on the list. And the restaurant scene has changed a lot here. I think even where I used to work, the, the Ritz gone the dining room's gone nomi concepted to a more casual kitchen casual fare where you can have a burger versus before i remember i got yelled at forever serving a burger in the restaurant and then uh, charlie trotter's closed and uh, avenues the peninsula so all the hotels sort of got away with that five star five diamond service we still have great restaurants but they're a little more casual and they, when they have the tasting menu they're kind of set to it to enjoy it with wine tasting with the flight. So the sommeliers aren't selling a big list. They're not going to propose the buyers, even though that's, that's the time when you have people that are going to spend the money or that are willing to go into the wine list. But they, the pairings are very important. So we'll see if, if there's a couple more restaurants that, that open up that are very food-driven and have a great wine list and a you know, sommelier. There's some great sommeliers here, no doubt, but... Um, what are those sommeliers like? I mean, what's the community like in Chicago these days? 
Oh, I mean, it's it's great. There's uh, a lot of people that have moved here recently. So Dan Pilkey is from California. Rachel Lowe spent a lot of time in, in California and in, in other cities. Now they're they're at the Trump and she's at Spiaggia. Alpina's opened her own place. So they're very close. It's very small. I feel it's not competitive. Most everyone here gets along. There's no big egos. But there's not a lot of like wine jobs. So if, if a big wine job opens up, it's kind of like stays within the community. People know and can re- refer other people. I haven't had anyone really move from out of town that I know. Or they are, they're young and they're kind of learning in the process. Are there things that kind of separate the Chicago scene in terms of the wine personnel, the staff from other cities that you visit? Is there something you think, oh, well, that's that's definitely a Chicago way to go about it? Here, they've definitely become more casual as the rest of the country. You see a lot less sommeliers wearing a suit and, the, you know, double Windsor tie and so forth. It's, I think, more approachable. Wine lists now are just paper, right? You don't get handed a book with leather bound and so forth or an iPad or any of that. So so the cellars are a little bit smaller generally. Cellars are a lot smaller, yeah. I except, you know, a couple of the hotels and Steakhouses, people like steakhouses here are, are crazy. We have one on every corner. Those are always going to be good for that style wine, right? Like, Is that a factor in the, the way that California wine sells in, in Chicago? That, that absolutely could be true. I mean, that seems like <laughs> be the logic. People are visiting business, they have expense account. Everybody wants to eat at a steakhouse. Even our, our producers, like when we have traveling Europeans and they go, we want to eat steak because uh, that's what they hear. They think Chicago is meat. And we're like, well, we have this great restaurant where they have some great French food and they kind of laugh at us. There's some good Asian restaurants, amazing sushi, but maybe not as uh, as good as the coast for sure. But uh, we always want to introduce them to the different restaurants. What's the retail scene like? Retail's good. There's a lot of it's small independent retailers. Frank Perman, very esoteric uh, selection. You can still go to the neighborhoods and when you go around Chicago, you see that people like to support local. They're very, very local. I mean, that word has been overused, it seems like. But uh, people, if you're from the town, they'll support your business more than if it's coming with a brand name from out of town, out of state. Uh, that's why chefs that have tried to open restaurants here, Samuel Markinson and even Wolfgang Puck, like they put their name on the because his name's Marcus Samuelson. Yeah. So I guess oh, yes, you yeah. really don't know. Exactly. <laughs> it really yeah. didn't last very long for him. Yeah. What's um, his name? Came what's that here. Guy's name? <laughs> I saw his picture. He did two events. <laughs> but if if you're from here, forget. It. Like, I mean, it has people are from that school of trotters or from another great chefs, and and then then people will support them. Um, so I think the same with. With a wine shop, and, and the ten, people tend to buy the, in the neighborhood. And in Chicago, I mean, if you go to like my neighborhood, Lakeview, you have houses all residential, and then in a corner you see a bar. And I think th- those are grandfathered in because there's no way you would ever be able to get a liquor license anymore to open up a bar in a neighborhood. Like so, it adds a lot of personality to the uh, to the city on the south side and north side, and just like having Wrigleyville. Um, People love the city and love drinking. And is there a high-end collector culture in Chicago? There's a lot of millionaires and billionaires in Chicago that are collecting. 
so you're going through one of these these big auction houses. You don't really see the smaller gray market. I remember like even talking to some ways now, like asking them where they buy, where they source. Uh, not not everybody is familiar with like how to buy with gray market and where to go, and, and they're just afraid of going to auction houses because everything's in a case. So you can't really build a wine list quickly if you're just buying cases of Lafitte you know, for $40,000. In a way, the restaurants and hotels have given way to, whether they're in groups or individual, but other independent restaurants, it seems like independent distributorship has also sort of taken along with that. So you have a new generation of distributors kind of matching a new generation of restaurants and then some select retailers working with more kind of personal items kind of working together or is it, just a coincidence that the things are happening around the same time. I, I think it's in it, they're kind of working together because uh, and happening at the same time, just by pure demand and, and how things have evolved. We have around eighty small distributors or eighty licensed distributors in Illinois. The majority of them are all in Chicago. Now we we can service downstate because there's there's cities in South and Peoria and Springfield that are are never serviced by any of these small. So, so if you're going to start a little Italian, Northern Italian distributor, you bring in some great wines when you're only seeing them in downtown Chicago. So I, th- I think that there's a little expansion. There's some, uh, hopefully, some unification with help from bigger distributors for warehousing and things like that that, that could help. I know s- some small distributors all warehouse at the same place um, so they can manage their costs and get that like distribution out lot easier what about the social media side of it it seems like that's always been a big concern for you yeah social media i mean as you know it's difficult to do that full-time because what we really wanted to do is is whoever was doing the social media or the handle was actual person who had you know the voice of the company and not just getting intern an intern to like be posting information and deals so um when I think in 2009, Ken wanted me to take that because I had a Twitter handle. I can't remember, I think in 2008 or 2007 that I signed up for it. And I had a couple hundred followers. And he's like, do that for the company. Start, you know, a Twitter handle. Now I have like four or five or six. I can't even remember how many. And I enjoy it. That's where I get my information. So we, we learned like to create our, our river of information and follow the right people and then distill that down and then spread it. So I'm always seeing what's happening around the world and what's happening, especially like in New York and London and, and San Francisco. So then we can either apply it here or come around, play with it. But having a lot of fun, like I, I needed to create a lot of content that just didn't exist. I didn't want to retweet everything. So I started interviewing our winemakers when they would come into to, uh, Tenzing and sit down with them and talk to them about you know, Burgundy and what they do and, and explain biodynamics and then all these themes that wasn't too salesy so that the end consumer, if they ever like stumbled upon this video, it was a master sommelier asking a, a winemaker about Oregon. And we started getting a lot of people following it. And I think that's that grew organically. And we you know, 100 videos, we started doing, we wanted to do podcasts, but like no time to do that. But then... Uh, there's but, no market in yeah, podcasts. It was hard. Like, but Facebook was one. It was seriously when 2009, looking at 
at the competition, nobody had a Facebook page. So that was one of the very first things that we started getting a lot of. Now everybody has a Facebook page, but uh, we're just trying to think of ways to become more innovative, to do it differently. Maybe we did QR codes for one, like summer. Who does that anymore, right? It's like we always try to stay current with technology. And I'm the guy. I think at the office when there's new people and I'm not introduced properly, they, they honestly think I'm the IT guy. And they're like, hey, I hear you're Fernando. Can you fix my phone? <laughs> can, <laughs> Do they talk slowly like yeah, that to you? Can, uh, like you don't speak my, English? My computer. My telephono yeah, is not working Oh, Yeah, my computer <laughs> is like not working. Do you know how to install? You know, I'm like, I only know how to do that because I, I don't know, I know how the technology works. Like I can charge my phone and put my email on my phone. But yeah. Did you show them the MS and say it doesn't stand for Microsoft? Yes. <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah, Microsoft. Exactly. And it happens still till even Friday. Like I'm in working on a map and because I'm, I'm also doing Google Earth and I'm known for that and social media because I would like retweet or like find these really cool maps of wine regions and post them. And uh, the wine community was like, oh, that's cool. I never saw that. So I started creating my own, like going on Google Earth, mapping out the regions, coloring them in. And then suddenly I get it like, yeah, yeah. excuse me, uh, we can't get the TVs to get the sound. And we have a presentation on PowerPoint. And then the salesperson from this company wants to know if he can use a Mac. I'm like, really? <laughs> there's there's a remote control like so i'm i'm the it guy slash education slash social technology and furthermore what would you say to the next generation of minority sommeliers you know you said it was important to you to find role models who seem to be moving up in that field what how would you approach a younger person who hadn't made it yet who maybe didn't look like all the other sommeliers well i i think if if you're young now and and you want to get into this it's hard because everybody wants to do it really quickly. Uh, young buyers want to become the head sommelier or the wine director very quickly without having been you know, a seller rat for several years, understanding how the prices and how to negotiate, how to think long-term and age some wine. So finding a, a mentor or working in a restaurant that has a, you know, a real focus and uh, service-minded with a good wine list is not going to change every six months is important. And and also like, you know, traveling and going to the wine regions and doing all that. I think there's a lot of people forget, like you can't have a, you can, but you see people opening up like North and Italian restaurants Italian, and never been to Italy. And like, that's hard. It's like me trying to do Chinese food. I just, why? Cause I, what other people are doing, right? I do what you know. And I think if you, Get the opportunity to travel for sure will help you in, in your experience. Social media, and I don't know if you're talking about like younger someone. Yeah, if they're active, you know, th- that's a great way to promote themselves. Cause because nowadays it's like you, you can have your 15 minutes of fame. It seems like it's 15 seconds, right? Everybody wants to be on top of it. So you you need to follow the people you need to interact with and the opportunities to like ask a winemaker or an editor at a wine question and get an answer right away people start to ask like who is this person you know, believe you and then your customers also will see what you're doing so it should be a requirement i think any we have as a requirement everyone had to get a twitter handle everyone salesperson driver 
uh, the office people and I like posted on our website. Not everybody can do it as often, but it was like, it's your job. You're delivering a case of wine at this new restaurant. Tweet about it. And then I'll retweet. I'll, I'll handle sort of like, you know, putting an image on there, putting it on our website, but get the word out because you're not following the right people. You don't know what's going on. We need that market intelligence all the time. It's, one of the things that's interesting about you is that I think some of your humor doesn't always come through on the professional side. And I, I wonder, has it always been easy for you to engage your whole personality into the profession? Like, is, it, is there a part of you, where you, is there a part of you where you think like, you know, um, this is what a wine guy is supposed to be like. And there's a part of me that doesn't quite fit into that. Uh, obviously, I mean, I think you know me a little, uh, and you can always say, like, am I holding back a joke or am I holding back? I th- people always, and it is true because when I'm in front of a customer in, you know, in a restaurant, I want to be as professional as possible. When I was the manager, you know, like you do a sales uh, meeting or you have a, a presentation at pre-shift, people always thought that was very serious. And then I go in the back and I like mess with the room service people. And like the Filipino uh, room service attendant, I'd be like, and like messing with them. And they're like, Fernando, you know, you're funny. And then I like, turn around and be like, <clears throat> I'm not. And <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of this dry sense of humor um, at the office. I mean, just, just so you know, 10 years working in the hotels, I was Fernando. And when I started working at Tenzing, I'm Fern. Not that I... They they picked it up on it. I started introducing myself more like my sisters call me or my friends call me and, and they would just use me by my nickname. So I didn't feel comfortable having people at the hotel, like 200 employees, just call me Fern. So yeah, I always wanted to be a little serious in one scenario, but now I'm like much more relaxed. Uh, they call me Furnace or Inferno. And the funny you know jokes are coming around and, and they'll be quick to say that, that I kind of have like the most jokes in the office and borderline, you know, inappropriate things, but never, never bad. I'll never like drop like F-bombs in a meeting. I, I kind of restrain that. So if when I do, everybody takes it a lot more serious because they're like, I'm not used to you, you like, you know, cursing or, but the, the jokes, they come out all the time. And where do you think that comes from? Is your family like that? Oh, my dad's a huge joker. My dad's always been uh, a clown. Um, he has a great sense of humor. And just enjoy it. What's like making people laugh? I think that that's the way to get you know people to like you. You always had to be the Joker in high school. It was like the class clown. You know, did that have to do with moving around a lot? Probably. I never was afraid of making friends, but uh, I, I just wasn't good in anything else, but like sports, or I wasn't particularly smart, or I wasn't on the uh, I don't know uh, theater. I didn't do anything. So I, to become popular, it was just joking and i actually took a route where i would um be different and i had friends and we would kind of you know paint our hair like get more earrings than other people or ride skateboards and in a little town in guatemala that's cobblestone streets doesn't make sense (laughs) but people wears out the vans really quick my aunts thought i was like in the gangs and was a drug dealer or something because i'm like your son because my mom would be like no no he's he's a good boy and I never did anything like that or illegal, but definitely just always joking. But I enjoy picking fun at myself first. And when I can do that, people kind of relax and they're like, okay, I'm making fun of 
who I am either as a sommelier, as a master sommelier, or like the, the view of, of something that we do. Uh, just so that people understand that uh, it's more, more relaxing and we should just enjoy it, have fun. And it, it, it is funny. And, and uh, they say that in humor, there's always a bit of truth. So that's why I'm always trying to find a, a joke that has a little bit of truth to it. And I think I, I play a lot with words, especially when I'm like on social media and I like I hear phrases and I'm always, uh, I think in sales, I'd be really good like in marketing because I spin them around or something. Maybe they're not funny like originally, but then I tell it to other people and I see what they think. And then uh, I'm like, okay, I like, I like to share some of these things that, that happen in my mind. And what are some of the avenues that that takes? And what does that sound like? Pinot Grigio tastes like chicken. You know, one of those things like we love Pinot Grigio and it's like, tastes like every, anything, you know, or, or if you're blind tasting, uh, you know, there's no crying in blind tasting, right? Because there's things that we would see in, in each other. I think um, one of the, the word plays I did once on Twitter was uh, Chateau du Heart and you're to blame. You give Lafitte a bad name. That's funny. You know, it's it sounds like a song, and then if you know the wine that Chateau Lafitte owns, Chateau du Hart, Rothschild. So it's like you know, you give Lafitte a bad name if because you're not first growth. And then some people are like the joke's too long, but I'm like ha ha ha, laughing at my like how that makes sense. Or Israel is making mad Iran, and then they read it and they go, "What? Israel is making mad Iran or mad Iran?" You know, it's. Just one, I, I wish I could just make t-shirts, like bumper sticker of all these things that I'm always thinking of. Do you think that's the same zone in your mind where you kind of learn multiple languages growing up, where you kind of look at different words? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, uh, I mean, everywhere I go, if there's a new language, I want to speak it. So I'm fluent in those four, but I took German for almost four years and I had a German girlfriend for five. I could understand everything. I just when she was mad, you got it. Yeah, it's just weird. When she was throwing things at your head, you understood. Yo, shit! (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I'm definitely don't want to use somebody's language if they speak mine or like an English, because then it's so slow. Yeah, langsam. But but when I was in Thailand, I picked up enough Thai to talk with you know the market or the the servers that didn't speak English. enough to tell them exactly like I want this or this order or the cleaning or my name is, or today it's raining because I enjoy, I enjoy using other people's languages. Uh, you know, having a name called today is raining is, you know, yeah. that's a, that's a Wani, tough name to have. I know it's Wani Akadima. <laughs> Wani Fontok. Fontok in Thai's rain. I, I can still remember that after like 14 years. It's crazy. Is it? Well, it's, it's been raining a lot in Chicago lately, so maybe it's, that's why. Fernando Batetta, thank you very much for being here today. Absolutely. Tenzig Wines and Spirits, education man, social media maven, and all-around good guy. Thank you. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe 
on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.